Welcome to the Mental Health in Schools podcast, designed and delivered by Anna Bateman. In this podcast, Dr. Carl Harris shares his experience of CAMS, the appointment process and what schools can do whilst awaiting an appointment. First, a quick word from our sponsors. At Jigsaw PSHE, we believe that personal development and strategies to build mental well-being need to be taught and not left to chance. Jigsaw, the mindful approach to PSHE, leads the way in providing children and young people with its acclaimed, well-structured and developmental lesson-a-week learning experience in PSHE from ages 3 to 16. Detailed lesson plans and all the teaching resources needed, along with free updates and ongoing support, make Jigsaw an invaluable, relevant and fresh resource, taking the worry out of PSHE planning. Written by teachers for teachers. A mindfulness philosophy and practice underpins the whole programme. Statutory government requirements for relationships, health and sex education are amply covered. For more information, go to www.jigsawpshe.com or call at Jigsaw HQ. Now to the podcast. Okay, so welcome to our um, podcast for Mental Health Leads in Schools. Um, Today we're going to be um, talking to um, Dr. Carl Harris, who's a consultant clinical psychologist, and we're going to be looking at how uh, we can support students whilst awaiting support from CAMS. We're going to be uncovering some of the tools and strategies that are used within a CAMS session and what you can do as a school to support young people while you're waiting for the appointment or indeed have a referral refused. Um, Dr. Carl Harris has gained a doctorate in clinical psychology in 1996 and worked within primary care, child and adolescent mental health and systemic evidence-based practice with families and community. He's been previously a clinical lead for early intervention with Birmingham Children's Hospital and NHS Foundation for about two years and has a particular special interest in community psychology which looks at the people, um, the systems and services around the people as crucial to their development. So this podcast is going to provide some ideas and support for you as a school now on what you can do whilst either waiting for support um, or if a referral has been turned down. So I'd really like to welcome you, Mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Carl. Thanks so much for coming. Thank you, Anna. (laughs) (laughs) It's great to have you here. Great to be here. Um, So I was just thinking about... um, Really, sometimes when I'm talking to schools, there's often a little bit of a mystery around what happens in a CAM session. Um, and I think some of that obviously is down to confidentiality. So, you know, a, a referral will be made, so the young person's gone, they've come back, but not much is shared about what's talked about or the support that's provided or any strategies or anything like that. Are you, are you able to give some insights perhaps onto, for schools on, on what happens? Yeah, I was thinking about it after you after you asked me about this this podcast today and about what happens in a CAM session, and it made me think about well, which which session are we talking about? Because one of the things that I guess schools are often waiting for is that first CAMS appointment, mm-hmm. where a child may have been referred by the school themselves or by a GP, and across the country, people are knowing that it takes a long time mm-hmm. to get from referral to, to that first appointment. 
So the first appointment is a really crucial appointment. Um, and I guess it's worth remembering that a lot goes on in that first appointment. Mm. So the family have been waiting for maybe a year for this first appointment. Um, they've got uh, concerns that have been going on for a long time. And the first thing that the CAMS worker is going to have to do is to form a relationship with them. Mm. So they know that they're coming along, they're feeling worried, and they need to get a good view from each member of the family about what's happening and what their concerns are. So they have to do an assessment. They have to form a collaborative plan with the family right. um, to decide what the family's objectives are and whether or not the service can actually help them meet them. Mm-hmm. Um, they'll probably have to do some uh, standardised assessments during that first appointment as mm-hmm. well, just to get a sense of where things are at at that point so they can check how things look later on and look at whether the things have changed. Um, and it's a lot for a CAMS worker and a family to do in such a short period of time. So a lot is going on in that appointment. Mm. Um, by the end of that appointment, there'll have been a decision about whether or not the services for that young person and that family, um, or at least they've made a step towards making that decision. Mm. Um, and I guess that's quite a thing for a family to wait for a long time and then at their first appointment to hear actually, we're not going to be able to meet your needs. And given the fact that, as you said, although people are working to try and increase the numbers of services available, there's still a big demand compared to the available resource. Mm. Um, So a lot of people are being turned away Mm. at that point. Um, And when they're turned away, I guess, there's a recognition that they have to be offered an appropriate intervention by somebody. Yeah. Um, so there'll be signposting mm. um, towards other relevant services and hopefully that will be that will be helpful as well at that stage. Mm. So the first appointment, there's a lot going on, mm. I guess is the point I just want to make yeah. there. Subsequent appointments, um, a lot of a lot of services are now split into or work through something called the choice and partnership approach. Mm-hmm. Um, short term for that is CAPA. And in those follow-up appointments, what happens generally depends on which part of that service you're in. Yeah. So I'm sorry, this is all starting to sound really complicated, <laughs> but I guess it's just to, just to highlight that um, there are particular steps in a lot of services now around the very first appointment and then what happens afterwards. Mm. So with your subsequent appointments, you might be going along to meet your, <clears throat> your main CAMS worker yeah. and they might just be checking so how things are going. Um, and if there's any big changes for you as a family, mm-hmm. uh, they might be trying to help you moderate the impact of those. Whereas you might also be going to see, or your child might be going to see somebody who's a specialist in something like cognitive behaviour therapy, yeah. s- still within the same service. Mm-hmm. And those sessions will be very much more about the specific tools and approaches of that therapy. Right. So once you've been through your first appointment, you'll move on to these other appointments. Yeah. Some of them will be, like I say, with your main CAMS worker who will make sure that things stay on track. Mm-hmm. And then the other person who will be working with would probably be more like a specialist in right. a particular approach. Right. And so would that be things like perhaps if, um, if there's an eating disorder or there's particular... Is it, is it mm-hmm. so it's broken down that the specialist support will then be provided for particular yeah. mental health yeah. needs? Exactly. So, so a lot of the time, I guess 
we talk about this word formulation, mm. which is a, a really important part of the process where the CAMS worker will, with the family, work out what they think lanes, the, the difficulties that they're seeing. But also there are ways of uh, categorising the experiences that people have. Mm. And you mentioned eating disorders, and that would be a really important way of helping a young person and their family and the worker decide what the main issue is mm-hmm. um, and then how they might go about working on that. Yeah. I think it's really important um, to sort of to describe it in the way that you are, that that first appointment, as you said, there's so much tension being built up both mm. from a school perspective and parental perspective of this appointment, this mm. elusive almost mm. sometimes appointment that it's really it's really helpful to know that actually that isn't necessarily like the start of therapy necessarily mm. with cams that there mm. could be you know other mm. referrals and i know um some schools have sort of talked about cams and handing out a sort of a handout that will say well you know we can't mm. support you at this point but here here's mm. the organizations that can mm. um so you know that's that's mm. really helpful to understand mm. yeah. so Talk me through what happens, um, say, um, this young person has been taken on by someone you know, like yourself. Mm. Um, what, what would happen in the sessions following? Yeah, so the, I guess the point we're making about um, the importance of understanding what's going on yeah. and how that helps you decide what the best way forward is. Mm. Um, one of the things that I guess people have found is that the more you involve the young person themselves in deciding what the goals are of the intervention, and if you involve them in, there, there are things that, forms that people complete at the end of each session which ask questions like, how well did your therapist listen to you? Right. Um, so the young person completes those forms. The more those, the more those uh, forms are filled in and the better they're listened to, mm-hmm. that can have a big impact on how effective the intervention is. So. I guess the point I'm making is what happens needs to be on the basis of a collaborative understanding of what the issues are. Um, we can use the formulation then to guide the next steps of the therapy, yeah. if that's the word that we're using to describe what we're doing. And that might involve, say, uh, working with a young person in terms of the thoughts, the feelings and the behaviours that they have. Yeah. It might involve um, working with the family mm-hmm. to try and identify some of the perhaps patterns or ongoing uh, issues that they've had as a family, perhaps over one or two generations. Um, or it might involve some psychoeducation, which is a term that people use for helping a family understand more about the condition, if mm-hmm. there is a condition that their, that their child is experiencing. And that, I guess, helps to clarify how some of the things they're doing might be helpful and mm-hmm. how some of the things they're doing might be unhelpful. Mm-hmm. Even though they might be d- done with the best of intentions, yes. sometimes the things we do actually <clears throat> don't help. Mm-hmm. So so the, th- the steps we take in the sessions that we, we uh, run with young people and their families very much depend on our understanding of the problem and how, how best to address it. Mm-hmm. And I guess, um, you know, your kind of approach um, is also thinking around, you know, the Mm. the community and who's around uh, that young person. Mm. Does that influence? So is there um, a discussion with the school at that point or is it just sort of family and and young person? Yeah, and I think that's a really good question about how does the way that you, as a worker, 
how does the way you understand a mental health condition affect the way you go about managing it or supporting somebody in managing it? And I guess for a lot of the people in our organisation, it's very much about, say, a problem or a condition and, and how, that's, how that's best dealt with. And I guess the same question would come for me, mm. but I tend to look out beyond the family as well. And so if you have a, an approach that's more of a systemic approach, that's like interested in how different systems around the family and young person impact on their difficulties, mm. perhaps then that does make you more likely to get in touch with schools with young people and their family's permission. Yeah. Um, because you can see that the things that happen there are of relevance mm. um, even though the problem as such might not be obvious or apparent there mm. there's still opportunities for schools to become places that can support young people mm. Mm. and I guess that's across the board all, all um, practitioners in camps would like to work in partnership with schools where possible yeah. um, but I guess sometimes the perspectives that people hold mean that they're more likely to focus on the young person's immediate experience, mm-hmm. like the thoughts, feelings and behaviours, mm-hmm. rather than think about the wider, wider yeah. context. Yeah. And now a short break to hear from our sponsors. CPOMS is an online system for schools to manage pastoral concerns and events and is now used by over 10,000 schools. The main reason it works so well is that the categories of information a school logs on CPOMS are chosen by the school, so that the concerns you face that are unique to your community or individuals can be logged accordingly. It saves a huge amount of time compared to doing things on paper. Chronologies for pupils or school-wide reports can be generated quickly. The Service Point support team provide an incredible standard of service and one of the main reasons that CPOMs are spread by word of mouth to so many schools. For more information, go to www.cpoms.co.uk, where you can also book a demo for your school. Now back to the podcast. So you've talked about how collaborative uh, or sort of joint the working together is that the young person isn't done to and mm. and you know very much it's That's sort of idea. led by them yeah. should be <laughs> should, yeah. Be, should yeah. be yeah yeah and and um and is there anything schools can learn from that because you know if we're if we're waiting for that comes appointment and we've mm. got a very um you know distressed young person um who's attending school or we're mm. trying to attempt to keep them within mm. school is there anything that you might do in a session or is there anything that you think might, schools could do that might help? Mm. I guess one of the things that you're very aware of is when you walk into a school and when you walk into a CAMS building is that they feel very different places. Mm. Schools are generally busy places where there are lots of young people moving about. There are clear structures and timetables. Um, there's bells ringing. Yeah. You know. We're we're talking about one sort of environment and and another, like a CAMS service, where there's still quite a lot of activity. um, I guess a lot of it happens off in quiet spaces where there's relatively long periods of time for uh, adults to work with young people. Um, and those adults are supported in a different way than, I guess, teachers are in school. So mm. there are some really significant differences about how easy it is for schools to engage with young people in the same way mm. as a camp service. 
But I guess the other side of it is it, it highlights what some of the, the big factors are. So having safe, calm, quiet space mm-hmm. to meet with young people. Yeah. Um, having staff who feel, I guess, confident um, in having conversations with young people um, and being those people being supported themselves Mm. in having those conversations so mm. we know that when young people are distressed when they when they talk to anybody about that that person themselves is like to feel a degree of anxiety or stress themselves because yeah. they're empathizing yeah with the young person so it's really important that those people are supported and mm. um, so I guess the first thing I'm talking about there is, is context I guess isn't yeah. it so like what what kind of arrangements need to be in place for schools to be able to support young people at the level of the individual who might be having a pretty stressful time. Yeah. Um, so other things that schools can do, yeah, I guess uh, listening. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a really important part of things, isn't it? Allowing young people to build trusting relationships with members of staff, um, equipping members of staff with some of, some of the knowledge and some of the support that will enable them to respond more effectively to those young people. Mm-hmm. I guess, yeah. But the big picture that's the kind of thing I think is helpful yeah yeah that's really interesting you've mentioned sort of about yeah about three different things that often you know I'll talk to schools about in that mm. prevention side of of mm. you know um dealing with either dealing with issues at the time but how we might prevent things from escalating but mm. that safe space mm. is one that um we talk about quite a lot oh, really? um yeah right. about ensuring there's somewhere that you can go when you're starting to feel overwhelmed mm. or it's all getting a bit too mm. much to to be able to take yourself off to a space either sometimes uh, I think we know students don't always want someone with them sometimes they do and again it's those relationships isn't it it's the trusted relationships they feel safe to talk um, and they feel that they're listened to so those are really really fundamental part and parcel of um, good well-being yeah excellent you know some schools they worry um, about um, making things worse that's quite uh, something that comes up a lot and I guess that's where the connection with confidence comes from um and you know staff not to feel like they're having to um sort of become a a mental health worker Mm. necessarily but are worried about making things worse can do you think schools can make things worse the question i guess as you i think the way you you reflected on that question i would agree with in that the question itself is almost a reflection of our anxiety about becoming involved in the in a world or the experiences of young people mm. and sometimes while there's while somebody's on a waiting list for a child and adolescent mental health service people are waiting for this magical moment when suddenly those fears will be taken away yeah. because they'll have been seen by this, these other people and and to some extent when there are high levels of risk um, I think that's quite a reasonable reaction so if we know that a young person is self-harming or if they've expressed say um, ideas about not feeling like a valuable person and not wishing to be here anymore you know those kinds of things would be really frightening I think for most of us to hear from a young person Um, and we'd want them to be seen quickly Um, and hopefully those children would be seen relatively quickly but we know that there are a lot of children who just raise concerns for us where it's perhaps a little less clear, um, perhaps the risks aren't as obvious, 
but we just nevertheless have a nagging worry about them. Mm-hmm. And again, it's quite normal to worry about those young people and to want to want to keep an eye on them and want to make sure that you've done everything you can. Yeah. So totally understand the sense of anxiety that, that people feel in that situation. And you mentioned at the start about th- only 35% of young people will be seeing uh, camps professionals uh, even after the Green Paper mm-hmm. um, has been brought, so the five-year forward view has been put in place. Mm-hmm. And at the moment, it's 25%, yeah. you know? So, so and that's, that's not just in the UK, that's pretty much a global figure, do you know? So around the world, that's generally what we see is that roughly a quarter of the people who could use a camera service do. So I guess I'm just putting all thing, trying to put a lot of this into, yeah. into that kind of context. So, the young person who's referred the school are waiting and hopefully feeling to some extent contained, mm-hmm. but possibly still worried. Um, can they make things worse? Can schools make things worse? I guess support and listening are unlikely to make things worse. Um, one of the obvious things I think that can be really difficult for for children who perhaps have grown up in situations of neglect or trauma mm. um, is around shame okay. and uh, according to there's a, a theory called attachment theory mm-hmm. which talks about how it's the relationship between a child and their main caregiver which is a particularly significant factor in their in their development um, and one of the ways that attachment works to help socialise children, to help them understand the expectations of the world around them is through the use of shame which sounds like a a pretty unpleasant thing but it's kind of a normal part of human development is that if a child does something they'll be able to pick up very quickly from the main caregiver's reaction that they've done something wrong that doesn't fit social expectations and the child's emotion is usually one of shame Um, but what caregivers usually do once the child has experienced the shame and has stopped doing whatever it was they were doing is they will repair the relationship and they will say okay look thank you for saying sorry you know now it's time to move on or they'll just comfort the child and the child will be able to re-establish the relationship but for a lot of young people that hasn't happened all that's happened is they felt the shame um, and they haven't had that sort of supportive reaction afterwards so sometimes, say, if they're in a school environment and they experience just the slightest criticism, mm. that can send them straight into a shame reaction. Right. Um, and some of our discipline policies can end up making that an even more powerful experience for the young person, which, I guess, prevents them from feeling safe in the school environment. So some of our discipline policies probably people need to think about them um, and perhaps I would say consult people like their local educational psychology mm-hmm. team um, I know in Birmingham there are some people doing some great work um, with some of the schools um, just helping them think about the impact of trauma mm-hmm. in children's lives and how they might want to reconsider their behavioural strategy bearing those things in mind because these people, are, these kids are often the most vulnerable yeah. and the most traumatised and the most deprived in our educational system. Yeah. I want to thank you so much for your time and uh, sharing some of your expertise and enlightening us on what happens as well in a CAM session. I think it's been really, really beneficial for schools. Thank you very much. Oh, great. Well, thank you. 
Dr. Carl, with his extensive experience, has given us a fantastic insight into the CAMS process and what helps when awaiting our appointment, and led us to understand the significant importance of a whole school culture, of trusted relationships, a calm environment, and being listened to. We also gain importance of deepening our understanding of trauma and attachment, particularly for our most vulnerable students, and ensuring our behaviour management policies are not shame-based and provide opportunities for repair. As Dr Carl has provided an understanding of the CAMS process, our handout this week features the five P's of formulation, as mentioned by Dr Carl. This is a process CAMS used to develop a working hypothesis or theory to help understand current difficulties, triggers, internal and external factors and any current strengths the student may have. It also then provides an opportunity to plan goals based on this process. You may want to use this perhaps when a student has disclosed that they are having difficulty with their mental health or emotional well-being or even in a discussion led by yourself. You may want to use this process as a mental process to go through in your discussion or a physical process with the student. It does not mean, however, that if we use the five P's of formulation that we are trying to replicate a CAMS session. We are merely using a tried and tested process to deepen our understanding of the students' difficulties and potentials for support. We hope that you enjoyed this podcast. For more information and support on this topic, go to the resources section at the end of the website. That's www.halcyon.education forward slash podcasts. Mm-hmm.